education principle, it's something we do very naturally. And it's something that we do even from a, a very young age. Uh, for example, in school, you might take a small child who has no idea the shape of the earth. So you might maybe take something that's familiar with them, for example, an orange, and say, see the shape of this orange? This is something you do know. This actually is quite representative of the shape of the earth, something you don't know. Again, using this communication principle, using the known to make known the unknown. So this is something that uh, we can use. We do it all the time. It's a communication principle, and it's something we're going to look at today. But we're going to look at it in the context of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel, communicating it with people. Now, someone who used this very effectively in the Bible was the Apostle Paul. And he's the person we're going to look at today. Because he can help us. In our world today, in our culture, the Bible is generally unknown. You only have to watch one of these quiz shows and they get the most basic Bible question and it could be the million dollar question and the person doesn't know what to say. People are biblically illiterate today. But we want to try and help them, to teach them about what the Bible says and what we can do is we start with what is known and use that to communicate what is unknown. Now well, something Paul was very good at doing was when he preached to Jewish unbelievers, what he would do is he would spend a lot of time often retelling the whole story of the nation of Israel. He would build a platform communicating with the Jewish people, talking about the history, talking about their scriptures, talking about Old Testament prophecy. He would make a point of connection with them. And once he'd established this thing that was known, he would then go on to teach about what was unknown, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now also, Paul became the primary evangelist to the Gentiles. And in this setting, he couldn't talk about the nation of Israel. That wasn't applicable in this, this situation. But he, again, was very good at finding points of connection where he could establish something that is known in order that he could then go on and teach about the unknown. And one of the best examples of Paul doing this in a context that was not a Jewish context is in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 16 through to 34. And that's where we're going to turn in a moment. Acts, chapter 17, verse 16 through to 34. It's page 1113 in the Church Bible, if you'd like to turn there. Acts 17, verses 16 through to 34. Now, Paul's Men of Athens address, which is, this is what, uh, this is often called Paul's Men of Athens address, it is a famous passage where he encounters a polytheistic, polytheistic, which is belief in many gods, a pluralistic, which is belief in many different worldviews, multicultural audience. So this is a difficult setting for Paul, but what we can find is that even in the midst of this, he goes ahead and he preaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now it's not difficult, too difficult for us to see today that there is indeed a polytheistic, pluralistic, multicultural influence in our own society. And so if we can conceive that there is a comparison that we can draw, then basically we can go ahead and use some of the things that Paul used to communicate. Again, the key principle, use the known to make known the unknown. But let's read from Acts 17, and we'll start at verse 16, go through to verse 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has said today when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is our authority. It is our source of guidance. And we thank you for the great testimony of Christ who lived and modeled what it is we should aspire to in our own life. We thank you too for for Paul, for his witness, for his testimony, and preaching the gospel in all contexts. And we pray that this morning we would indeed learn from your word, to be challenged and encouraged with ways to better communicate the hope that we have with the hopeless world that we live in today. We do commit this time into your hands, Lord Jesus, and ask that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first lesson we learn from Paul is move into the culture when God moves you about the culture. Move into the culture when God moves you about the culture. Christians should react to the worldly culture that surrounds them. There should be a reaction to what we see all around us. Paul encountered this in Athens. He was waiting for a couple of friends, but he saw the idolatry and he was moved. He was provoked to do something about it. Now, he didn't wait for some extra sign to go and preach the gospel there. Paul saw the hopelessness, and he knew that he had the key to hope. He had the gospel that he could present, and so he was moved to go and do that there. Paul was moved by the culture, so he moved into the culture. And what we see is that when you're ready to move into the culture, first thing you want to do is speak up where people are likely to listen. What does Paul do? He makes a strategic decision. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue there to communicate with the people there. Now, in the synagogue, there was no guarantee that Paul was going to get a good reception. In fact, if we look earlier in the book of Acts, we see that every time Paul preached in the synagogue and encountered the Jewish leaders, even when he could prove the gospel, the Jewish leaders didn't want to accept it. They wanted to kill him. 
This was the, the risk that Paul ran, but he knew also that in the synagogue, these were the religious people, the people that did care about right and wrong. So Paul saw the idolatry in Athens. He saw this is clearly wrong. It's an offense against God. So he goes to the synagogue to have that point of connection to start to talk about it. So Paul reasons with the Jews there. But he doesn't just talk to them about idolatry. He goes on and talks to them about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Paul also reasons with the God-fearing Greeks. He has something in common here. These people worship Jehovah. So he has that point of connection. He starts to talk to them. He talks to them about the idolatry, but not just the idolatry. He also goes on and preaches about Jesus and the resurrection. So we need to go and speak up where people will listen, but also we need to speak up where people are likely to be. Paul goes then and reasons in the marketplace. Now he's already preached to the religious people in the synagogue, but then he goes to the marketplace. Now this is a completely different environment. There's more people, there's a more mixed group, uh, there's a lot of noise, a lot of hustle and bustle. One wouldn't think it's the greatest place to go and communicate anything, but that's where the people are. So that's where Paul wants to go. And when Paul goes into the marketplace, he engages some of the philosophers of his day. Paul reasons with the Epicurean philosophers. Now, Epicureanism is the philosophy of Epicurus, a guy who in the 3rd and 4th century BC started a school of philosophy in Athens. Now, this school of thought was that we are only material beings. We're just physical stuff. So, therefore, when death comes, we are extinct upon death. So, there's no need to worry about death or fear death. And life is all about the here and now. And, therefore, it's all about just trying to be as happy as you can. Now, it's not hedonism. It's not pursuing sensual pleasure to the maximum effect every day. The Epicureans taught that one should pursue a life of moderation, just to be happy. And one of the primary driving forces in this was to avoid anything that would cause you pain and confusion in your life. Avoid those things and you'll, you'll have a happier life. There was a song a few years ago, Don't Worry, Be Happy. That could be the song of the Epicureans if they were still around today. Well, this is uh, something that they held and this is something they used to influence Athens in the Athenian thinking. Now, the Epicureans also looked at the divine realm and they were philosophically polytheistic. They held to many gods. There was a realm of many gods that they would affirm existed. However, they thought that this realm, this divine realm, was completely distinct from our own and there was no crossover. In fact, the gods had no part to play in our life, our behavior, in any way, shape or form. Epicureanism was practically atheistic because the gods had nothing to do with us. Life is all about the here and now, trying to be happy, avoid pain and confusion. Paul also reasoned with his Stoic philosophers. Stoicism, which grew out of the philosopher Zeno. He was a contemporary of Epicurus, also started a school of philosophy, 3rd and 4th century BC in Athens. But the Stoics taught something a little bit different. The similarity was that they thought we're also just physical beings. We're just material stuff. However, the Stoics taught that this divine realm rather than be completely separated from us, with no influence on us, the Stoics taught that our world, our experience, was divinely determined by the gods. In fact, everything that happens in the world, everything that happens in our life, has already been determined by the gods. There's nothing we can do to change anything. There's nothing we can do. So the Stoics taught, rather than get exasperated and frustrated about this, what you should do is come to terms with the fact. You can't change anything, so why get frustrated? Just be at peace with things. They are the way they are. This is what the Stoics were teaching in Athens. So these are two schools of thought that had a, an influence on the people in Athens and the way that they thought too. But Paul goes into this context and he still goes and preaches about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul always preached the gospel. 
and never be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who will believe. So Paul went into the setting and he preached the gospel. Now we're going to see from the reaction that Paul has still had some more work to do. But Paul preached the gospel clearly and this brought about a response. But one of the responses was, some could not understand Paul's message. To some, the gospel is unintelligible. It makes no sense. They cannot understand what we're saying. It's like you're speaking another language, or maybe you're not even speaking a language at all. If people don't have an understanding of Christ, if people don't even have an understanding of God, the way that the Bible represents him, the way that nature reveals him, then to preach the gospel to these people is going to be a source of confusion. They didn't understand what he was saying. Paul also spoke to these people, and some misunderstood Now, this is not the same thing as lack of understanding. Misunderstanding means that you think you understand, but you've actually got hold of the wrong end of the stick. You've not quite understood what the person is telling you. And Paul also encounters this. So these are two of the kinds of reactions that Paul has because he's preached the gospel. But he's not finished there. What this does is this highlights areas that Paul can then move on and address and start to deal with, to answer their questions, to overcome their confusion. So move into the culture when God moves you about the culture. The second point I want to say is move through the door of opportunity when God opens it for you. Move through the door of opportunity when God opens it for you. We read that Paul gets a special invitation to go and preach or go and speak at the Areopagus. Now this is a wonderful opportunity because the Areopagus was the most prominent place in Athens. This is where the important people met, where the thinkers really gathered together. It's where the Greek council would meet. And Paul gets an open invitation, come to the Areopagus and tell us. Now, why was Paul invited? Because this is quite an honour. Well, there was genuine interest in Paul's message. The gospel is uniquely different. It's uniquely different from any other religious system, any other religion, any other worldview. It's not about what we can do. It's about what God has done. Jesus Christ came into the world as the only way to God because he was God. And he died for our sins to prove this and was raised again from the dead. Every other religious leader points the way until they're dead and buried. Jesus Christ is the way. He died, was buried, but then he rose again. He's uniquely different. Christianity is uniquely different because Christ is uniquely different. However, while it's different, there's something you might hear quite often. Why is Christianity so exclusive? If you've not heard that before, it's out there, so keep your ears open. A lot of people are saying it increasingly. And people say this as if every other religion... Every other religious system was warm and accepting, but Christianity is just so exclusive. Why is it? Well, Christianity is different, but it's not the only exclusive religion. Christianity claims to have the truth, and that's just stupid. I heard this recently. I didn't say this, in case you were wondering there. I heard this recently from a young German guy that was sitting next to me on a plane. Now, he was a nice guy. We had a good conversation But he said this because he was genuinely frustrated at this aspect of Christianity. So I said to him, you don't think Christianity has the truth? He agreed. He said yes. So I said, well, what you're telling me is that you have the truth, the truth that Christianity is not the truth, but if no one has the truth, how can you even make that claim? He went quiet because he realized that his claim, his counterclaim, was in fact a claim to be the truth. He said, no one can have the truth. Well, that's a true claim. Is that true? Because if so, then someone has the truth, and I guess you have it. Or if nobody has the truth, then what you've said isn't even true, then why say it in the first place? 
This is something that people come out with a lot, and we need to recognize it and learn how to deal with it. Because either what he was saying was true, and he just defeated his own argument, or what he said wasn't true, and so therefore it was meaningless. Now, of course, it was a truth claim. He was claiming to have the truth. Because anyone who opens their mouth with any kind of authority or meaning makes a truth claim. We do it all the time. The issue is, how do we back up the claims that we make? That's the important thing. Christianity gets such a hard time today because, and one of the reasons why, is it's very provocative. People know it claims to have the truth. People know that about Christianity. And that makes it exclusive. But that's not something we should apologize for. That's not something that we should shun away from because every truth claim is exclusive. By definition, to say one thing is true is to say something contrary to that is false. That's what the word means if you say something is true. And truth is crucial to the Christian message. Why is it people don't see this about other religions though? It's strange. For example, Islam. Islam is just as exclusive as Christianity. We don't hear this in the same context as often. Muslims will only be inclusive to the extent that your beliefs agree with their own. And where your beliefs contradict the Quran, your beliefs are wrong. Now, I don't want to single out Islam because every religion, every religious system is the same. They all make a claim to have the truth. But where you, uh, you're only included where you agree, but wherever you disagree, you find very quickly that you're excluded. Anyone who rejects Christianity, for example, for being too exclusive, immediately excludes Christianity. So these people are actually just as exclusive as Christians. Most inclusivists are really closet exclusivists. If you go looking for it, you'll find that out. And the real issue is not inclusivism versus exclusivism. The real issue that we need to deal with is tolerance. Now, I want to raise this because this is a serious problem in our culture, but not the way that you'll hear it presented on the media, because tolerance is being changed. It's being redefined. It's being changed to mean you must agree with everyone. You must agree with everyone. How can you do that? How can you agree with anyone? How can you agree with someone who's in complete disagreement with you? And that's not what tolerance means. Tolerance means that you disagree with someone, but you do so agreeably. You still respect the person, you allow them to hold their view, but you disagree with what their view is. That's what tolerance is. That's how you tolerate other people. Tolerance doesn't mean you agree with everyone, because that's impossible. How can you do it? Interestingly, many of the staunchest defenders of this new tolerance, you find very quickly, are themselves intolerant because they will not tolerate you if you disagree with them. It doesn't work both ways. Tolerance becomes this thinly disguised attempt for people to get their own way over you. You have to believe what they believe. Don't dare try and tell them what to believe. When I was in the States, in California, I saw a good example of this. I was watching a a TV news report about a radio talk show host called Dr. Laura. Now, she was a Jewish lady, she had a very popular radio program, and she had strong moral views based upon Old Testament teaching. People loved her on the radio, they thought, we're going to give her a TV show. So they flew her out to California, so she could start to record this television show. But on the first day of filming, there was a number of gay activists outside the TV studio, with their banners, demanding that the TV studio cancel her program. They said, Dr. Laura is intolerant of us. She's wrong, and why she keeps saying that homosexual acts are against God's teaching? 
Why is she saying these things are wrong? She shouldn't say these things. She should be silenced. She should be shut up. Her program should be taken off the air. This is what the gay activists were protesting about outside the TV studio. So I watched the news reporter carry this story, and the story was Dr. Laura accused of intolerance of homosexuality. But hold on a minute. Let's look at this a little bit closer. Dr. Laura disagreed with these gay activists. That's a fact. She disagreed with them. But she actually respected them as persons. She would always speak agreeably about these people and allow them to hold their view. She tolerated them. She disagreed, but she did so agreeably. However, the gay activists, they did not tolerate Dr. Laura. They demanded that she stop holding the views that she held. They demanded that she be silenced. They demanded that her TV show get taken off the air. Now, the news reporter was reporting this story as a fight for tolerance on behalf of these gay activists, fighting against the intolerance of Dr. Laura. But Dr. Laura was the one who was tolerant. The gay activists were the ones who were intolerant. Couldn't she see this? Well, obviously not. But many people in our culture today are blinded by this, blinded by this fact. If we can start to learn how to identify truth and defend the exclusive nature of truth, to know about tolerance, to defend what tolerance really means. This is going to help us go a long way towards engaging in some of these discussions in our culture, helping people to see what really is true because we get so muddled in our thinking, particularly through the media. Well, Paul lived and taught about Christianity. His message was provocative, but he was able to defend it. He was able to clear away the obstacles that stood in the way of people hearing what the gospel was all about. And that's hopefully what we can start to do in our own lives too. So there was genuine interest in Paul's message. We need to be ready because interested people are going to ask questions. There was also genuine interest in Paul's reasoning. Paul stands up for truth and reason in the Areopagus. The key to connecting with what is unknown first begins with something that is known. Paul uses the visible idolatry to connect with what is invisible, the unknown God. And he goes on to talk about this unknown God as the one true God, the God that was ultimately revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now this kind of methodology has been given to us by God. Romans 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. God's invisible qualities have been made visible in the world. That is something that's been given to us by God. God's creation, in many ways, is indicative of himself. The world intelligibly points to God. Now, Paul uses this similar connection, and he connects with the Athenians. He notes the Athenians are very religious. The word can also be translated superstitious. But this kind of religiosity is very prevalent in Athens. So Paul addresses it. And he addresses the fact that these people are caught up in religion, but there's very little understanding they even have an idol to the unknown God. So as they carry on, Paul starts to address this, and he uses this as his endpoint. He wants to connect with something that is known to make known the unknown. Now, have you ever spoken to someone who says they believe in God? But it's kind of an off-the-cuff remark. It maybe doesn't mean very much. The person has no reasons why they would believe that, and their life certainly doesn't show any reflection that that belief is true. People kind of use this, well, I believe in God, almost like a safety net, almost, well, just in case if God does exist or maybe he's listening right now. Got to be very careful. Sure, I believe in him. People will offer this response often, but under these circumstances, it's not genuine belief. It doesn't really mean anything. And this kind of God actually becomes a creature of our own making. 
So the question we ask people shouldn't be, do you believe in God? That gets people off the hook too easily. But if you believe in God, what kind of God do you believe in? And why? And then follow it up. Is your belief true? Very important question we need to ask people. No one wants to live a lie. That's true of everyone. Otherwise, you end up like the emperor who got the new clothes. Remember him prancing around, thinking he was great. when all the time, everyone was laughing at him. He was living a lie. No one wants to live a lie. But what is strange is that so many people seem content to support their belief in God without any concept of whether this is true or not. It's supported by nothing more than wishful thinking. Well, where does this come from? We see it all the time, particularly in the media. And I get so frustrated at the so-called famous people in the media who come out with these kind of statements too. How is it people can establish a belief about something so important and not know or care if it's true? Well, I submit they do care. They do care if it's true. The problem is that they would rather live a life without God, without acknowledging God, so they can live their life their own way, doing their own thing, rather than submit to the fact there is a God and as a consequence have to submit their life to God, living their life uh, the way God wants them to. People don't want to take that step. So Paul is connected with what is known. Now he takes the next step. He teaches about what is unknown, the unknown God. From the, un- from the known idol, Paul talks about the unknown God, and then he starts to flesh this out as the, the God of creation who came into the world, giving him a platform and a foundation to teach about Jesus Christ. In verse 24, God created everything and does not depend on us. Paul here establishes a kind of cosmological argument using the cosmos to argue for the existence of God. And before we can communicate Christianity, if people don't even have a biblical concept of God, we need to start there. We need to build a case for theism, for belief in God. There's an American theologian and philosopher, William Lane Craig, who has uh, an argument for God's existence, and it's a version of the cosmological argument. Number one, everything that begins to exist must have a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore the universe must have a cause. It's an argument that he uses. This is not to prove biblical Christian theism. This is just to try and connect with people about the fact that since the universe appears to have started to exist, something or someone must be responsible for that. And that someone or something is God. Dallas Willard, a philosophy professor in California, has a three-stage argument for the existence of God. Stage one, something doesn't come from nothing. When in our experience does anything come from nothing? It doesn't happen. We're here. The universe is here. Where does it come from? Something doesn't come from nothing. Stage two. Order doesn't come from disorder. In our experience, you can throw around your clothes in your room and after a million and million years, will your room be beautifully tidy and folded? No, order doesn't come from disorder. It breaks down. It goes the other way. Stage three. Whenever we infer design, we infer a designer. It's our natural response, our natural reaction to what we perceive as design in the world. Well, Willard argues that the evidence of the world should lead us to infer that there's an, there's an intelligence behind it. This intelligence is God. And that this should be our starting point in any deliberation. We should start off believing that this is at least true until it's proved to be false. So these are both approaches that we can use to help establish a case for theism, for belief in God, which then can be a platform to present the case for Christianity. Well, verse 25, not only does God not depend on us, but we depend on him. The age-old question, did God make man or did man make God? Crucial question that we need to deal with right away, right from the start. Because this will help us determine whether Christianity is God's design or is it man's design? Is it God's design 
or man's design? Who designed Christianity? Who's behind Christianity? Many people act like God is man-made, and therefore we can basically shape and mould God according to whatever we want. Recently I was watching Question Time, and I heard a comment which reflects what's in the media right now. With the appointment of a gay bishop, isn't it good that the Church of England is finally catching up with the rest of society? Maybe you heard this, maybe you've read about this reported in the media. And I want to clearly say that if man made God, if man made God, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. Because at last the Church of England's keeping up with society. At last it's reflecting the times. But, and this is very important, if God made man, then it's not about how people or society change. It's about knowing and maintaining God-given standards for life and practice that do not change. That is the distinction that we need to make and that is the question we need to ask. Did God make man or did man make God? Who is the authority that we need to look to? Now, if people would only acknowledge that God made us, it would make things a lot easier. But, like Athens, people have been busy making, fashioning and worshipping their own gods for a long time. And once you have this kind of divine power in your life, effectively you are the God of your own life. And it's not easy to give up that kind of power. Verse 26, God knows and, uh, who we are and determines where we will be. Christian theism differs greatly from a, another view of theism, which is deism. Uh, a deism. A deist would hold that there may be a God, but he's not responsible for the world anymore. He maybe got things started, but he's away doing something else right now. The universe ends up a bit like a clock that's been wound up and then just let go. Christian theism, though, is distinctly different because it teaches that God remains actively involved in the affairs of this world. God cares about his creation. This brings a personal factor into the religious equation. God cares for the world, and especially for people in the world, because he made them in his image. This is um, something we learn from the Bible, and as we learn more about God, based upon a biblical concept. Also, God has orchestrated events in the world for his primary purpose. Verse 27, God is available to all and wants us to know him. What is God's purpose in the world? Reconciling lost people to himself. It says in Jeremiah 29, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Life is a quest for God. And when you wholeheartedly seek after God, you will find him. Verse 28, God is the creator and sustainer of all. I was talking recently to someone and he said to me, Do you really believe in creation? I mean, the Garden of Eden. Well, the way he asked the question, obviously I knew where he stood on this issue. But I said to him initially, I said, well... You might be thinking about an alternative, talking about evolution, if it's naturally guided and this encounters a lot of problems and it's certainly only a theory and it's one that hasn't been proved. And if you look into evolution, you can end up with a lot more questions than answers, but I don't want to spend too much time talking about that. To answer your question, I said, I do believe in the biblical account of creation. Even the Garden of Eden. He stepped back. He was amazed. He'd found one of these weird people. Well, then I asked him, I said... Have you heard about the fact that genetically we can trace human lineage back to a single woman thought to have lived somewhere in Africa? She's even been given the name Eve. This has been stated by a Centre for Human Genetics in Oxford. It's also been widely reported in the media. And he said, well, yeah, I have actually heard about that. So then I said, well, isn't it curious that this is what modern science tells us today? And yet this is what the Bible teaches which was written thousands of years ago. 
How do you think the ancient writer of the book of Genesis was able to get this important fact right, or at the very least in line with current scientific thinking? He went quiet. This was something he didn't know. Use the known to make known the unknown. And using this kind of question and answer format means that we're not bashing people over the head with the Bible. We're trying to give them true information that can be life-changing. Trying to connect with someone at a point where they know something and using this to build a bridge into the unknown. Well, this was Paul's model for communicating in Athens. We find it's very successful. He builds a case for theism, for belief in God. And this gives him a platform to present the case of Christianity. Verse 29, Paul teaches about a relationship to God. This deals with the issue that man did not make God. God made man. In verse verse 30, Paul goes on to teach about a response to God. Paul preaches about repentance. This is the first time he introduces repentance into his message. Now this is something the Athenians, particularly in the Areopagus, didn't encounter very much. Because it was all about just changing your way of thinking. But repentance involves much more than that. It involves completely turning your life around. Turning away from something, turning over to something. Turning away from sin, turning to God. Repentance involves thought and action. This was important for the people in the Areopagus to be challenged by. Paul also went on to speak about coming judgment. Now this is an aspect of teaching and preaching that's increasingly disliked and often unacceptable. Don't speak about judgment. Don't speak about hell. People don't like it. Oh, the issue is not whether people like it or not. The issue is, is it true? Is it what the Bible teaches? And if so, we need to be responsible. And the Bible teaches about hell and judgment. Jesus taught about hell and judgment. Paul taught about hell and judgment. We need to be able to share about hell and judgment. They're true. People need to know. But the secret, the key is, don't just hammer someone with hell and judgment before they have any understanding about what the whole gospel message is all about. Present everything in its context so people understand the place for hell, the place for judgment, and the concept of, uh, alongside the concept of understanding God, who he is, his plan for the world, what he has done in the world through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Give a balanced sharing of the gospel message, but don't leave these things out. Paul finally teaches about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because without the resurrection, the gospel is meaningless. It's empty. It has nothing to offer. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then we can't triumph over death either. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he wasn't who he claimed to be. However, we do know that Jesus did rise from the dead. The tomb was empty. People saw his his risen, resurrected body. So again, based upon the resurrection, this is a powerful part of the gospel that we need to include. Because what it does is it gives us hope. It gives us hope for the future because we see Christ, who he was and what he has done. So Paul gives his message. Then what? Well, there was genuine response to Paul's conclusion. If you present the truth of Christianity to someone, there's three options. Someone can have unbelief. Someone can be agnostic, whereby they look into something but choose to suspend judgment for the time. Or they can go ahead and have belief. They can accept. And we see that after Paul gives his message, particularly about the resurrection, some sneered. A strong negative reaction. Now, we need not to be scared about this because this can happen. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. And if we give the gospel accurately and in love, and if people still reject it, then there's nothing more we can do about that. Some also wanted more information. Again, this was new thinking. This challenged radically their whole way of looking at the world. Everyone is on a spiritual journey of some description from accepting Christ to rejecting Christ. Everyone falls somewhere along this line. 
And Paul's hope was that whatever people were, even if they're not quite at this point to accept and trust in Christ, that whatever they are on this line, that after he shared the gospel and gave reasons for it, that people would be edged along a little bit closer, bumping them along towards acceptance about Christ. That some at this stage just wanted more information. Some too, though we hear, they believed. Dionysius, a member of the council, the Areopagite, he believed. Damaris and others. This is the goal of sharing the good news of the gospel. When you encounter someone taking that step from darkness to light, from lostness to being found, from being separated from God to being connected to God, there's no greater joy to see this happen. And this is something that is truly special. So the communication principle we can learn from Paul's teaching in Athens is this. Use the known to make known the unknown. When God moves you about the culture, number one, move into the culture. Number two, go where people will listen. Talk to people who care about things that really matter. Number three, go where the people will be. Don't be afraid to interact with people who are different or who think differently. Number four, walk through the door of opportunity when God opens it for you. Number five, share the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Share the gospel and then be ready to deal with the questions that come as a result. Begin, number seven, by identifying what is known to the listener. And then going on, uh, number six, sorry, identify what is known to the listener. Number seven, teach what is unknown. Establish a belief in God that gives you a platform to present the the case for Christianity. And number eight, be ready for a reaction. Rejection, consideration, or acceptance. Just to close, Jani was an Italian friend of mine who grew up in Australia and moved to California. Now, Jani and I got to know each other because I was playing football for a a football team, or soccer as they call it there, and Jani wasn't a Christian, but he started to play with us. We were actually a Christian team. And so Jani knew about football, loved football, had played football all his life. And he started to come and he'd practice with us during the week, he'd play with us during the games, and after a while he started to notice something is different, and I don't know what it is. There's something different about you guys, playing with you guys, the way you play, the things you say, the way that you interact. There's something that's unknown, and I don't know what it is. Jani knew about football. He didn't know about the love of God flooding through someone's life. So I got a chance to know Jani over the weeks, and eventually one night outside training uh, in the parking lot, I got to stand with Jani and share the clear gospel message with him. And Jani knew about football. He didn't know about the love of God. And I could communicate this known fact about our love for football, but then go on to talk about what was unknown, the love of God and how forgiveness and the love of God is available to everyone who comes to Jesus and is forgiven for their sin and turned around and reconnected with God. As I shared this message with Johnny that night in the parking area, he decided to trust in Christ. He stepped in and he made that commitment. Well, I went home and I was just on cloud nine. It was fantastic. It was wonderful. There's no better experience to see someone take that step from darkness into light. And it happened through this process of communication as Johnny started to connect with what the gospel was all about. That is what Paul did very, very effectively. And I pray that that is what we can do and are encouraged to do more of in our own lives with the people that we know. Let's pray.